Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. In less than two hours, the Trump-era policy that quickly turned away many migrants at the southern border will expire. And thousands of desperate men, women, and children who've already made a dangerous journey over hundreds of miles will attempt to enter the U.S. Border Patrol are bracing for a surge. And the effects are spreading to cities as far away as Denver and New York. CNN is live at the southern border in just a moment. Plus, the things Donald Trump said to Caitlin Collins last night and to the CNN town hall audience, some could get him into some legal trouble and why E. Jean Carroll may sue him again. Our panel has thoughts on this. And the man who put Jordan Neely in a fatal chokehold on a New York City subway is expected to be charged with manslaughter tomorrow. We'll tell you what's next in that case. But let's begin with what's happening on the southern border tonight. You're about to look at El Paso, Texas. That's where about 1,500 migrants have been processed in the last 48 hours. The chief of Border Patrol says roughly 1,000 people, including families, are still waiting. The mayor of El Paso says, quote, we can't continue to do this for eternity. Let's bring in my panel. We have Caitlin Dickerson from The Atlantic, who won a Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on the Trump family separation policy. Also, LZ Granderson is back from the Los Angeles Times. We have former Senate candidate Joe Pinion back with us and attorney Raul Reyes, who writes for CNN Opinion. Also joining us from El Paso is CNN's Ed Lavendero. Let's start there, Ed. So we're less than two hours away from this policy ending. What are you seeing on the ground at this hour? Well, you know, if anyone's expecting like this big dramatic moment, we're at uh, 10 o'clock mountain time, almost midnight Eastern, where things dramatically change or look incredibly different here on the ground. Um, I don't think that's what we're going to see unfold. So the question is, what is this going to look like, not just uh, tonight and into the morning, uh, but also over the course of the next few days? But right now here in El Paso, what we have seen uh, is a number, I think the number was about 2,500 migrants or so just here in this area that had come across the river and they're essentially waiting in that space between the Rio Grande and the border fence, and that is where they have been uh, kept uh, for several days uh, now. And those people are in, being processed by Border Patrol officials here on the ground. Uh, we heard from the chief of the Border po- Patrol today saying that number was about 2,500. So far, they've processed about 1,500, so there's still about 1,000 left to go that are in there. But there are still a number of people, and it's very hard to quantify just how many are on the other other side of the border trying to get here. And that's the question and uh, the, the real question about how this will look like in the coming days. And Ed, because of so Title 42 is ending and that's what we expect will cause this surge. However, the Biden administration is now starting this new policy whereby people can be turned away if they haven't applied for asylum in the country they've transited through to get to the U.S. In other words, Mexico. So what will happen? Well, since most people won't have done that, will they be turned away quickly? 
Well, I think the real question here is just how this kind of information is being communicated to the migrants that are essentially coming up through Mexico or already there. Remember, you're dealing with an insane amount of misinformation uh, that many of these migrants receive. So as we sit here and talk about uh, the things and, and the policies that the Biden administration is trying to roll out here in the last 24 hours or so, it's not exactly clear that that information is getting to the migrants themselves in a clear, honest fashion. There are, uh, you know, many of them de depend on social media um, and messages from family and that sort of thing. So the amount of mis misinformation is really staggering. So how they will react to this and what kind of decisions migrants will make on whether to cross or not, I think it kind of depends on what information they're getting and how they perceive and interpret that information that will determine how they make their decisions to cross and where they make the decisions to cross, because that plays a big factor into this. Are they, are they trying to set up appointments and come through the CBP app uh, and come through port, ports of entry, or are they doing it between ports of entry, which really complicates things for them in the future? Yeah, um, really helpful context, Ed. Thank you. Stand by, obviously, for us throughout the evening, and we will check back with you. Um, Raul, let me start there, because let me just put up for everybody this new Biden asylum rule, okay? So this is different, um, and it sounds like something that, you know, President Trump might have wanted right, to try. Right. So it presumes that migrants are ineligible for asylum in the U.S. if they did not first seek asylum in a country they passed through, like Mexico. If found ineligible, they could be removed through expedited removal and barred from re-entering the U.S. for five years. So won't that be a game changer? Uh, I, I'm not sure because this policy is very similar to the Trump era policy, which was struck down uh, repeatedly in the courts. The Biden administration likes to say that this policy, that their policy is different because it does contain certain exceptions and loopholes, but those, those are very small. Those are, those are small, it's not a huge difference. Why that policy is so problematic is because he's basically, the, the administration is basically trying to outsource our asylum problem, our problem at the border to Mexico and other countries in Central America. And if we can't handle the, this large influx of people at the border, what makes anyone think that, say, Mexico, Guatemala, Costa Rica, any of these countries on the way can, along the way can do it? And it's also very legally problematic because a president can set immigration policy, but no president can change immigration law. And asylum is written into the laws established by Congress, and it requires physical presence in the United States to, just, just to make the application. So he's trying to outsource the problem to Central America. That's sort of uh, an executive overreach into something that needs to be settled by Congress. But isn't it all of our problems? I mean, in terms of Mexico and these other countries? I mean, don't we all have an issue and a desire to want to solve this problem? Well, absolutely. And I think when you look at what's happening here, I think it should be both sadness and outrage of what is occurring here. I think irrespective of your political sensibilities, uh, this is an administration that came in and said that they wanted to get rid of the Remain in Mexico policy. They said that they wanted to see Title 42 overturned. They said that the border was completely under control. They had a DOJ that sued the state of Arizona for erecting those temporary barriers uh, with shipping containers to try to stem this tide of immigration. And now what do we have? We have the mayor of New York City declaring a state of emergency 
emergency for the migrant crisis, the mayor of Chicago declaring a state of emergency. Those are not Republican bastions. That is a direct result of a Biden administration that went out of their way to contravene Trump policies without actually having a plan that recognized the human lives that would be destroyed if they didn't actually implement a sound blueprint for how do you actually mm. keep people on the road to their American dreams or in the safety as they flee oppression abroad. Caitlin, you've done so much reporting on this. How do you see what's happening tonight? I think that Title 42, more than anything, reinforced the dysfunctional dynamics that already existed at the border. It's a Band-Aid solution, and I think to Raul's point, replacing it with another Band-Aid isn't going to make a difference. I've seen this time and time and time again, literally stemming back to Mm 9-11. And here's the latest example. Prior to Title 42, actually illegal crossings were very low. Most people crossing the border were turning themselves over to agents requesting asylum. Title 42 took asylum off the table. Now you see illegal crossings increasing. Why is that? In part, it's because of a massive demand for labor in the United States that we're not acknowledging. And so to your point, I just want to add a little bit of additional context. In New York City, where I live, where a lot of us live, very busy right now, very overwhelmed, certainly. Um, At the same time, sources of mine who are running these shelters where people are living say every single one of them are employed. They're going to work every single day in jobs in New York. So these Band-Aid solutions are not going to be more powerful than the forces that are pushing people to the United States. Instability abroad, climate change, conflict, lack of safety, nor are these Band-Aids going to change the powerful, powerful draws in the vast number of jobs that are unfilled and that these migrants are very eager to fill. LZ, um, last night, uh, former President Trump was asked about this by Caitlin. Let me just play for you his response. If the family hears that they're going to be separated, they love their family. They don't come. So I know it sounds harsh, but if you remember, remember they said I was building prisons for children. It turned out that it was Obama that was building but the prisons re- for the children. But would you re-implement that if you're re-elected? Is well, that what you're saying? A, we have to save our country, all right? We so can't it sounds afford... like that's a yes. No, no. Your thoughts on all this? <sighs> you know, I could see if the history that he tries to disregard was like a long time ago. Yeah. But like the Great Migration was literally the heartbeat that sent African-Americans out of the South throughout the entire country because of what? Dire situations at home and jobs. We literally just went through this, which reshaped the entire country. So for him to sit here and say that if they really love their family, they wouldn't leave, it's just more of what we expected of him when he was offered the position of sitting there in the first place. And you, of course, just won the Pulitzer Prize for the family separation. So what did you think when you heard that, Caitlin? Thank you. I was going to say, please let me jump in here um, as I've spent so much time on this issue. A couple things. One, I've reported on this. I've asked members of Congress, you know, so the moment when family separations was the biggest really story globally on immigration in the United States was one where Republicans and Democrats in Congress, for once, were saying the exact same thing. The House Freedom Caucus and Nancy Pelosi Everybody in between was saying that family separation needs to be outlawed. And yet what I've reported since then on why family separation hasn't been outlawed, what I've heard is, well, no president would ever bring that back. Someone actually just asked me that in the hallway moments ago. There's no way family separation would come back, is there? 
President, former President Trump just said on national television that he would be willing to bring family separations back. And if you call any of his top White House aides from when he was in office, they'll tell you the exact same thing. So the threat of family separations returning is very real, and it's not been taken seriously for some reason. And, you know, people ask about whether the Biden administration would turn to family separations. I don't think so, based on the language that you've heard from the Biden administration, um, both during family separation prior to Biden taking office and then now. But almost all of the restrictions that the Trump administration imposed short of family separation are either in place now or have been debated under President Biden. So um, it's a, we're a very, very far cry from the summer of 2018 when, uh, you know, Biden, who wasn't president at the time, talked about this as, you know, a, a crime against humanity. They've really come a long way here. Which is why the asylum ban that Biden is implementing right now, that is something that as a candidate, he denounced it. And I think, you know, when, when we see these pictures of people at the border in this, this, you know, it's so much suffering. It did not have to be this way for, for a couple of reasons. One is DHS has continually asked Congress for additional resources and funding, and Congress has said no. And second of all, the Biden plan, when Title 42 was to be phased out in December, they wanted to do a gradual phase out, sort of wind it down maybe by sectors or across the span of a few months. Right. The GOP, uh, the Arizona, Texas, and several Republican attorneys general, they got a federal judge to agree to prevent any type of gradual phasing out of this program and got him to insist that it happen all at once, therefore causing more chaos, more confusion. And, it, you know, in the meantime, the, this asylum is a, a, a Humanitarian yeah. right. Friends, I'm sorry, we have to go right well, now, but, but we're going to be covering it all, well, just, all evening. J- just quickly, though, yes. I be, because we, ha- we have to understand yep. the reason why you have attorneys generals and you have governors hopping in. They're hopping in because it hasn't been dealt with at the national level. And I think, again, you have 1.2 million gotaways coming into this country uh, who have evaded capture. Those are real people. That's real suffering. And as top of these people who don't seem to want to drill down on the issue... It's not a Republican or a Democratic thing. It's just the fact that both parties have failed, but this administration... The failure of Congress. Yeah, yeah, but this administration, I think, in particular, has refused to actually deal with the seriousness of the, of the, of the matter. As I said, we'll be watching for the next two hours plus what happens there at the border. Thank you very much for all of your reporting, your perspective. Next, what Donald Trump said in the CNN town hall that could put him in more legal jeopardy. That's next. Former President Trump had a lot to say last night in CNN's town hall. But today, lawyers say that some of his statements could put him in further legal jeopardy. My panel is back and joining us is CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. Joey, great to have you here. Okay, everybody, let's go through the four statements that former President Trump made last night that lawyers that raised the eyebrows of many lawyers. And Joey, I'll start with you. The first one was about E.G. and Carroll. He had just been found liable of sexual abuse and defamation of E. Jean Carroll on Tuesday of this week, two days ago, when he said this last night. They said he didn't rape her. And they did I didn't do anything didn't. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can who I, this woman can I ask- is. They said, sir, don't do it. This is a fake story and you don't want to give it credibility. One That's thing why you, I didn't go. One thing you did do in this... 
And I swear, and I've never done that. And I swear to I have no idea who the hell, she's a Mr. whack President, job. You, you did not testify. Joey, uh, does she have a new case for him calling her on national television a whack job? I think so. I mean, it's troubling and it's problematic. You have to respect some of the judicial process. I mean, come on, Mr. President, Mr. Former President. The reality is, is that a jury spoke. And whether you love what the jury had to say or you didn't like what the jury say, the jury found Miss Carroll credible. The jury found that she was sexually assaulted. Uh, the jury found that he defamed her. And so then to then suggest, first of all, that he had no opportunity to defend himself at the trial when indeed the judge, in fact, kept the trial open for purposes of his testimony. And then, too, to say she's a whack job and to go on and say other things, uh, that's what you call defamation. False statements which defame, impugn, impair reputations and cause damages. And so let's see what he has coming, if anything, as a result of those But things. is it worth it for her to go back through this long no, process? It's not. I mean, look, the bottom line is that she, uh, in large measure, has been vindicated in all respects, and she's waited such a long time. And I think that's what she wanted. That's what she got. Um, I can't explain the president's uh, temperament, tone, demeanor, or statement. And obviously it was troubling to hear the laugh line. I mean, to hear the um, audience applaud and laugh as well at that. It was. was. (laughs) Do you want to take that one? I I, I don't mean, but we knew they would, right? I mean, that's why it was created, right? When you fill up a, a space with his supporters and you allow him to speak... They're going to applaud when he says things, and he has a history of saying very disturbing things. So in some regard, we, ex- we knew he was going to say disturbing things about sensitive topics because that's been his history. Yeah, I guess I just had erased from my mind that people would laugh about... The, remember you know, the military like- guy who... I remember, I think it was during a debate in which someone from the military said they were openly gay, and the audience like kind of booed him. And this is an officer in the military, and this is supposed to be the party of the military, but the man said he was gay, and so the crowd booed him. So I guess I'm just not shocked anymore to hear the rudeness because we've been unfortunately sort of conditioned to know that it's there. All right, let's move on to the next thing that he said, that lawyers uh, made them do a double take. And this is the um, January 6th. So he's being investigated for January 6th. And it was interesting, Joey, you'll tell us if this has any legal merit, to hear him say um, that he did have power over his supporters that day. So listen to this. When it was clear to you that they were not being peaceful, you saw them rushing the Capitol, breaking windows, they were hitting officers with flagpoles, tasing them, beating them up. When it was clear they weren't being peaceful, why did you wait three hours to tell them to leave the Capitol? They listened to you like no one else. You know that. They do. I agree with that. Why is that legally precarious? Well, it's precarious because if they listen to him, these are people who stormed the Capitol and, you know, you can spin it the way you want to spin it. That was a hellish day. It was a tough day in the memory of the country. It was a tough day with respect to what they exacted upon the Capitol, how they put lives in jeopardy, how they went after the vice president, how senators and others were just in danger. And so to give the indication, well, that's true. I do control them. How about controlling them by saying, you know what, this is not right. This is not proper. How about we don't do this? That didn't happen. Happen and that's troubling. Joe, I heard um, some attorneys say that they had never heard President Trump that before that explicitly say, yes, I could have controlled, the, like acknowledge 
that his word goes a long way with oh, them. Like, I, I think we get a little too cute by half with some of this. I think that there's this notion that, yes, you have people that support you in politics, and on that basis alone, you have some sway over them. I think in some regards, it was a missed opportunity for the president to stand up there and say that anyone who used the flag of this nation to break glass at the people's house to assault law enforcement doesn't understand MAGA, doesn't understand the Republican Party. Uh, and so I think that, in many ways, was one of the missed opportunities for the president. But I do think on this issue and many other issues, the cake is fully baked for about 80% of Americans. Really, I think, again, many people have talked about it. There are other issues that are more pressing uh, for that remaining sliver of persuadable voters. Let me quickly go to this next one. And this is about the Georgia investigation. I mean, you know, he's still being investigated in Georgia for his call to the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Here's how that came up last night. Given the fact that there are indictments expected to come in that case this summer, is that a call you would make again today? Yeah, I called questioning the election. I thought it was a rigged election. I thought it had a lot of problems. I had every, I guess he's Secretary of State, I called. Listen to this. There are like seven lawyers in the call, many of them from there. We're having a call. We're having a normal call. Nobody said, oh, gee, he shouldn't have said that. Why? If this call was bad, I questioned the election. You asked if this him call to find was bad, votes. I didn't ask him to find anything. Let me We've just heard the audio if tape, this Mr. Call President. Was There's bad. an audio of you asking him to find I you 11,000 votes. votes because the election was rigged. So, Caitlin, the you owe me votes, we've heard lawyers say, is evidence of corrupt intent. Well, it, it, <laughs> it is not a, a comment that was supported by fact. I think that again and again, it's like we can parse each of these responses that we heard last night. And it, there was both a lot of news elicited in the town hall and then at the same time, very predictable answers. I think they give us a clear view of what a Trump 2024 candidacy will look like. It's everything that we saw in 2020, but amped up even more intensely. You know, no more of a desire to stick to fact-based rhetoric, um, no more of a desire to tamp things down and appeal to moderates. It's, it's 2020 on steroids. And, you know, remember going into 2016, there were endless conversations about whether Trump really meant what he said on the campaign trail. He proved in his first administration that he did, and he's he's tripling down now. So I think we really know who Trump is. And the other important thing to keep in mind, you're probably right, the vast majority of voters know where they stand on Trump. But important to note that what I continuously heard and still hear from Trump top Trump aides is that you know they learned a lot in the first four years in terms of how to be more efficient, how to impose his will more quickly um, with even less restrictions in their way. And so all those things well, we yeah, can anticipate. He's, he's yeah. talking about suspending the Constitution. Of course he's, he's you know, thinking of ways of being faster. That's important <laughs> reporting. Thank you very much for all of your perspectives. All right. A Hall of Fame college basketball coach is facing consequences for using an anti-gay slur, um, he has a suspension, he's having his pay docked, but he was not fired. So has something just changed in cancel culture? Our panel's going to explore that. West Virginia University men's basketball team coach Bob Huggins is apologizing for ugly homophobic comments he made on a radio show this week. We're going to play you these comments so that you can hear them, but we warn you they are offensive. 
I tell you what, any any school that can throw rubber penises on the floor and then say they didn't do it, <laughs> by God, they can get away with anything. <laughs> I, 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 rubber penis. Was this I like think that was at the Crosstown shootout, wasn't it? It was transgender night, wasn't it? What? Was that it? It was a, it was a Crosstown shootout. Yeah, no, what it was was all those f***s, those, those Catholic f***s, I think. Okay. So in response, the university is docking his salary a million dollars per year and suspending him for the first three games of the season. They're also requiring Huggins to get sensitivity training, but they are not firing him. My panel is here and also joining us is Jennifer Kingston from Axios. Um, So, Elsie, I think this is interesting. Well, let me he's apologized. Okay, so he he made these Mm -hmm. these um, anti-gay statements Mm -hmm. publicly on the radio. And then he put out a very full-throated apology. So let me just read you a portion of it. He says here, um, as soon as I find it, I have reflected on the awful words that I shared on a radio program earlier this week. I deeply regret my actions, the hurt they unfairly caused others, and the negative attention my words have brought to West Virginia University. I have no excuse for the language I used, and I take full responsibility. I will abide with the actions outlined by the university and athletics leadership to learn from this incident. He also went on to say, um, I I also regret the embarrassment and disappointment it has caused our athletics family, members of the campus community, the state of West Virginia. Um, Did Olivia Pope write that? Why why do you, you don't find it, you don't find it, you don't find it sincere? Do you? Yeah, I do. You do? Because he doesn't say, if anybody was offended, I apologize. Because Olivia Pope wrote it, so it's correct. But it doesn't mean it's sincere. And judging from the tone that we all heard, it doesn't sound as if he reflected as much as he was corrected. That he, someone grabbed him and said, you need to fix this before it sparks into something more. Not like, on second thought, maybe I shouldn't make these anti-gay you know, gay slurs on radio for kicks in the year 2023. His comments were clearly heinous, but he did uh, take responsibility for his actions. He apologized for causing pain. He used those words. And uh, public opinion seems to be shifting ever so slightly uh, away from uh, cancel culture and its cousin, toxic tribalism. A uh, Pew Center poll, they polled people about their attitudes towards cancel culture uh, in 2020 and then the following year and found a marked uh, decline in the percentage of respondents who felt that uh, it was okay to call out people on social media and uh, hold them accountable for everything that they said. And, and, a, and an increase in people who said, you know, maybe this isn't okay. We need to back off. That's what I was wondering. I was just wondering if this is an inflection point of some kind. I mean, do you think he should have been fired? I believe he should have been fired based upon the body of work. You know, this isn't his first rodeo in terms of getting in trouble. And this is someone who is a longtime university presence who's in charge of raising boys. And he's said men. other things like that. He has been problematic in the NCAA for a variety of reasons, which is why he's bounced around from time to time to time. I will say this about the coach. He is a very, very good coach. So if you ask yourself, why wouldn't a university fire them? If you go back and look at the universities that do tend to fire people who do bad, look at their win-loss records. 
compared to the ones who survive, look at their win-loss records. So are we looking at someone who's a good coach or a good person, right? What distinction do and we a make? famous, I believe also a famous alum as well. Yeah, I, I think what, there's no question, Allison, that the statement, the comment, uh, inflammatory, improper, and wrong. The issue is what should the penalty be? And I think that's appropriate for debate. Is it appropriate to just get rid of someone because they make a mistake? Or do you have them atone for that mistake by having a significant penalty that gets them to realize and understand that this isn't right and perhaps they can change? Um, I think a million dollars might do that. I think in addition to the million dollars, other things uh, certainly that he has to do as a result of saying that, saying what he said. And do you think that. that his apology goes plays into that somehow? I, I think it does. It's important to it's important, I think, for people to be accountable for what they say and do. It's important for people to accept responsibility. It's a difficult question, though, for us to get into the minds and know if something's sincere, is it not sincere? The bigger issue for me is what's appropriate? Is firing and canceling disproportionate or is it proportionate? What is this this canceling, though? Whatever happened to the word accountability? Why is why is the word cancel all of a sudden used in order to make it be you know a why, bad Elsie? thing when someone crosses a line I, and being held accountable? I for think, Elsie, the reason is is because we've seen where people have done things and then they're just wiped from the planet. It, you're just done. Ooh. And so then the issue is there's a long litany of people, even in media, who you know may have done things and they're just wiped from the planet. So the issue <laughs> is, do they get another opportunity? One example that comes to mind for me, uh, former Senator Al Franken resigned over uh, accusations of inappropriate Mm -hmm. uh, touching. And, well, I'm not here to defend him. Uh, He later said that he regretted stepping down so soon before there was a Senate inquiry. Uh, He felt that other people had been treated differently. Uh, We have more recent examples of uh, J.K. Rowling and uh, uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, you know, opinions may differ about their status in society. I think this is different, though, right? Like, I just don't think that, I, I don't think we can put the comments of Huggins into Dave Chappelle, who prefaced his statement by saying his sole purpose of having the conversation was to have more inclusivity. But, Joe, what so, do you think? Do, do you think he should be fired? I think it was certainly a fireable offense. I think when you think of the West Virginia as a state institution where he is an employee of the state uh, and he's responsible for molding young men, that certainly it was fireable. I think that we've seen people suspended for entire seasons uh, for much less. So I I think that perhaps the notion that it is assumed he keeps the job, in my estimation, was the problem. The fact that it was just three games, I, I think, was effectively a slap on the wrist. And I think even beyond that, I think, to your point, you know, back when he was at Cincinnati, there was a period in time when he had a graduation rate of zero. Yes. Uh, now he currently is at West Virginia, where we ended up where a period we had a graduation rate of 100. So it does yeah. show that people can change from one place to the next. Yes, accountability is necessary. Sincerity is necessary. Sincerity does not preclude you from being held accountable. Sure, understood. And so I think that's where we have to be have to stand here. Thank on. you for your perspectives. Meanwhile, pressure building for days on the man who allegedly held Jordan Neely in that fatal chokehold on the New York City subway. So now we're learning the district attorney is expected to charge tomorrow. We're going to tell you what charges next. A major development in the New York City subway chokehold case. The Manhattan DA says 24-year-old Daniel Penny will be arrested tomorrow 
and charged with second-degree manslaughter for using a fatal chokehold on 30-year-old Jordan Neely. My panel is back with me. So, Joey, what does second-degree manslaughter mean, and what will Penny, the suspect, now have to prove that he did this in self-defense or in the defense of others on that subway car? Correct. Uh, So, manslaughter. Uh, Manslaughter is when you engage in an action that is reckless. What does reckless mean? It means you consciously disregard that your actions could cause something like death. And I think the argument will be that with the sustained hold, that was clearly reckless because you knew or should have known that that could occur. I think the defense will be one of justification. You were permitted in the event that you're defending yourself or others to use uh, you know, lethal force. Then the question will be for prosecutors, really? Did you really think that you could sustain a hold like that for that period of time without killing someone? Do you think there could have been other alternatives that might have been more appropriate? Do you think that that force under those circumstances was proportionate to any threat that was posed? Did you really think there was an imminence of fear or danger? So there'll be a lot of, you know, questions around that and how they're answered will be how this trial goes if it goes that far. I mean, Joe, I assume they'll have to find, in, in for his defense, witnesses who say, yes, I felt my life was in danger. But we We've not heard from any of those people. I mean, we don't know. They haven't come public yet. If that's yeah, the look, I, I think, again, it's just it's a sad case. But I think to Joey's point, the issue becomes at what point in time was Jordan Neely no longer a threat to others or himself? Uh, what is the video actually going to show when he suddenly stopped moving? Obviously, he was moving at the beginning uh, of the encounter. At some point, he stopped moving. At some point, he stopped breathing. So uh, those are going to be the issues. I think that is something that needs to be brought to court. I think that's why we're seeing this arrest happen. And I don't think it's an unreasonable conversation uh, for the justice system to be trying to parse. We don't have video, as far as we know, maybe we do, of what happened before that chokehold. Right. But we don't have any reports of violence. This is an awful story. It's just an awful story. And, you know, I don't know what the evidence is. I don't think any of us know what the outcome is going to be. But I do know we know what the blame is. And that's our mental health system. It failed Mr. Neely multiple times, over and over again, in the biggest city in the most powerful nation. Like, so when we look back on this, on this case, on this situation, yes, someone may ultimately end up, you know, paying the price for his death, but there were multiple times in which the system could have saved Mr. Neely and it failed him. The governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, called his case a, a wake-up call uh, for mental health professionals. And on Monday, she allocated an additional billion dollars towards mental health enhancements in the state of New York, uh, which sounds great. Uh, the problem is that uh, Jordan Neely had been in the system. He had taken a, a plea bargain and agreed to go into outpatient treatment, but he walked away from it days later, uh, a decision uh, or an action that his, his family uh, faulted the city with not doing more to prevent. Uh, it's a very difficult and intractable problem, and this case really points to how hard it is to, to solve. Such a great point. I just want to read his attorney's statement. So this is Daniel Penny's attorney's statement today. When Mr. Penny, a decorated Marine veteran, stepped in to protect himself and his fellow New Yorkers, his well-being was not assured. He risked his own life and safety for the good of his fellow passengers. The unfortunate result was the unintended and unforeseen death of Mr. Neely. We're confident that once all the facts and circumstances surrounding this tragic incident are brought to bear, Mr. Penny will be fully absolved of any wrongdoing. 
Mm-hmm. We know that Jordan Neely will still be dead, right? And so I think that's the unfortunate reality of all of this. And I think to LZ's point, yes, the governor can get on TV and talk about a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than just the money. The system is broken. And when you look at the despair from public housing, $40 billion behind yeah. in repairs, a New York City mayor talking about $5 billion for migrants, we don't have the resources to deal with the people here today. It's a complete collapse of government. We are a house of cars falling on top of ourselves. We have to leave it there. Thank you all very much. Next, the Natalie Holloway case. There's an update. It was the mystery that dominated headlines for years and left a family in mourning. 18-year-old Natalie Holloway disappeared on a high school graduation trip to Aruba in 2005. Natalie, you can reach me on your cell phone. I have it, and it's set up for international use now. And I will stay here until I find you, Natalie. This case has been going on for 18 years. That's as long as Natalie was alive. CNN covered the arrest of the prime suspect, Euron Vandersloat, 13 years ago. The disappearance of an American teenager. Joran van der Sloot, the prime suspect in that case in which Natalie Holloway went missing five years ago, now sits in a Peruvian jail. He is suspected of killing 21-year-old business student Stephanie Flores in a hotel room. The Flores case in Peru has again sparked interest over Holloway's disappearance five years ago in Aruba. Anders Sloat was one of the last people to see Holloway alive. Seven years later, he was convicted of murdering 21-year-old Stephanie Flores in his Lima hotel room and sentenced to 28 years in prison. There's two cases. Uh, that's Natalie Holloway and that's the Flores woman in uh, Peru. The only relation uh, at face value between the cases, of course, is Joran van der Sloat. A name that conjures harsh opinions from many here in Aruba. He just disgraced Aruba real bad. So I just want to know the truth, what happened to Natalie Holloway, so, so they can, you know, like erase our, our name and bring it back to how it was. Well, now Natalie Holloway's family may finally see some form of justice as Vander Sloot is extradited to the United States. The U.S. government has sought to extradite him to stand trial here for extortion. He is accused of taking money from the Holloway family on a promise to lead them to their daughter's body. She has still never been found. And authorities believe he used the money to travel to Peru, where he met Stephanie Flores. Okay, now I want to bring in Callahan Walsh, co-host with his father of Investigation Discoveries in Pursuit with John Walsh, streaming on our corporate sibling, Discovery+. Plus. Callahan, um, great to see you. Look, you know as well as any family in America that families never give up. And the fact that it's been 18 years, still Natalie Holloway's mother has never given up and has wanted some measure of justice. Mm-hmm. It, it breaks my heart that she still has to deal with this. But it's, it's, I'm, I'm so thankful that the U.S. Uh, Justice Department and State Department never gave up. And this temporary extradition, which we don't see a lot of, uh, is a great sign that they're continuing to fight for Natalie. And while this might not be uh, charges of murder, um, I know her family is seeking any justice in any form that they can get. And so while justice doesn't provide closure, closure is not a word that we use, it does provide answers, and those answers can help in that healing process. But let's talk about this, that why it isn't a murder charge. And and it's extra... 
extortion. And so what does that mean for Natalie's family? Well, the murder occur- uh, occurred not on, on U.S. property. Uh, however, uh, when he tried to extort the family, which is just despicable. I mean, here's this family grieving over the loss of, of their young child, uh, of their teenage daughter. And here he is trying to extort hundreds of thousands of dollars from this family. So they were able to bring him up on extortion and wire charges because of uh, wire fraud because of this. And so it's just, again, a testament to the fact that we're never going to give up, that the, the State Department, her family, they're continuing to fight back and they're making sure that this, this guy pays for what he's done in whichever form they can get justice in. Um, as you and your father know so well, there are patterns that sociopaths or psychopaths exhibit. And so should people be surprised that years later, Ron Vandersloot found himself guilty of murder in Peru for Stephanie Flores? Uh, you know, I'm, I was not surprised. Here's a rich kid uh, who's probably never been in trouble a day in his life, got away with murder the first time, uh, extorted a fa- the family for, for more money, uh, saying that he's going to lead them to, to her, her body, uses that money to, to flee uh, the country and goes to another country and murders again. Not surprising. Uh, these creeps do this because that's what they want to do. And he exacted whatever hatred he had in his heart on Stephanie that night uh, in that hotel room. And I'm just glad he's serving time for that murder, but at least he's getting, and and Natalie Holloway's family is getting some justice in in the fact that he's being extradited. Now, I'll I'll believe it when I see him here on U.S. soil, because we've extradited a lot of guys uh, from America's Most Wanted to the show my father and I co-host from Mexico, Belize, Brazil, all over South and Central America. Um, I'll believe it when I see him on U.S. soil, but I think that's going to happen. Callahan Walsh, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Coming up, some of our top reporters are here to talk about the stories that they're working on, including the expiration of a critical immigration policy that is sparking a potential crisis at the border tonight. They're here to explain what's going to happen in the next hour. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. But there is a big story tonight to bring you, and that is the expected surge at the border. As the Trump-era policy used to quickly turn away some migrants is set to expire in less than an hour. We have our great lineup of reporters with me tonight. We have Polo Sandoval, Athena Jones, Shimon Prokupes, and Eva McCann. Ed Lavendera is also standing by for us live in El Paso, Texas, where this is happening. So in less than an hour, that Trump-era policy that quickly turned away migrants is going to expire. Thousands of men and women and children are waiting just across the border, and federal officials are bracing. Polo, what can we expect in the next hour and coming hours? Well, you know, uh, the chief of the Border Patrol actually painted a picture of what we could expect, which is we may not see those numbers. In fact, our colleagues there on the ground have been reporting some of this, that we may not see those numbers that were anticipated. Now, we have seen, though, some significant numbers in the last couple of days, about 10,000 apprehensions in the last 48 hours, and that is really what's straining authorities, as you'll hear from the ground in a few moments. But I think in what we'll talk about in a few moments also is really the impact on what will happen in cities beyond the border, right? Is once that Title 42 dust settles after tonight, will we see a noticeable difference? 
we certainly will see it in some of these major cities. And Paula, why are they telling you we may not see the surge that was anticipated? Well, because we began to see that surge days ago, right? It's like there has been, even to a certain extent, misinformation that's been circulating among some of the migrant groups that are south of the border, staging in Mexico, hoping to make their way into the United States. Many of them have these sort of false pretenses that if they make it here now, then they stand a better chance of securing asylum. That, again, we cannot stress enough what we hear from U.S. authorities it's not true. So, but, so the thing is with this whole notion that all these thousands and hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of people could potentially be coming here, um, where, did, where did that start? How did that start, sort of that idea that perhaps there could be this influx? We don't, some of the big numbers that we really started to see was after the pandemic. Remember, Title 42 was enacted in March of 2020. The goal of it was to limit the spread of COVID-19. Um, But that quickly turned into an immigration band-aid. And that is why this is that can that kept getting kicked down the street over and over again. I remember reporting from the U.S.-Mexican border 13 months ago, anticipating the end of Title 42 in a few weeks' time. Mm -hmm. That, the courts then get involved. They they, they postpone that. And here we are now in less than an hour. It will come to an end. Let me bring in Ed because he is on the ground there. So, Ed, can you just describe for us what you're seeing at this hour? Well, I think what we're seeing is is not going to be, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, the clock strikes midnight and all of a sudden, you know, thousands of people start running for the border. I don't think that's the way this is going to unfold. Um, and as Polo has mentioned, you know, we've already started seeing uh, that surge in the days leading up today. I think the numbers in the last few days have been 10,000 apprehensions per day, which is record setting. But the Biden administration has been saying uh, for several months that it, the, the numbers of people crossing after this was lifted could be anywhere from 15,000 to 18,000 per day. Uh, the Border Patrol chief kind of starting to walk that back and, and perhaps not convinced that that is not what we're going to see. Uh, but, you know, there are uh, a number of people stuck right now between uh, the Rio Grande and the border fence. It's important for people to know that, you know, the border wall that you see, especially here in Texas, does not actually sit on the international borderline. It sits a distance away. The international borderline goes through the middle of, of the Rio Grande, so you can't build the wall there. So there is this kind of what's known as like no man's land, and that's where many of the migrants have been able to arrive and, and await there behind the border wall as they wait to get processed. There's been about 2,500 or so in the last 48 hours, and they're trying to process the, a, a lot of those people. But the real question will be, what happens to the people who have been sitting and waiting on the Mexican side of the border for months and months, and what does decisions are they going to make now that all of this is going to change here so dramatically in about an hour? But Ed, what is going to happen to all of those migrants? Are they going to be turned away when they get to the U.S. border tonight at midnight? Well, there, there, there's still a process of being able to request asylum if that's if that's what they want to do. So there are a number of ways to do that. You can come through a, a port of entry. Uh, you can still come between ports of entry, but that becomes a little bit more complicated situation. And I think one of the things to actually look for, and it's really important for people to understand this, since this policy has been in place for the last several years, you've had this phenomenon where people cross the border between ports of entry. So that is an illegal crossing, but they immediately turn themselves into Border Patrol agents. So it's been kind of like this organized chaos. If you've been and spent any time in these border areas, you see mass groups of people and they simply just turn themselves in. I think in the in the coming weeks, you're going to see and they're starting to see signs of this where if the process becomes too difficult to, to, to get in, you're going to start seeing those numbers of people who are trying to evade arrest and trying to, trying to get away from Border Patrol agents. Uh, I think those numbers are going to start ticking up rather rather quickly. 
um, that's something that we'll be watching. Okay, and stand by for us throughout the program because obviously we're going to keep checking back with you. But as you were alluding to, Paula, um, it's not for a while. This crisis was contained at the southern border, and now it has you know drifted north. And uh, New York is bracing and Denver is bracing. And all of these various mayors or governors have said, you know, we can't handle the capacity that is coming here. So what's going to happen in the days to come? It's the next chapter that we really need to be talking about right now. You're looking at a map or at least you were looking at a map that shows some of the cities that, according to Bronzeville city officials, many of these recently arrived asylum seekers are asking to make it to cities like Denver, where uh, they do have uh, emergency protocols there in place. Of course, Dallas and Houston, some of the major cities. So they're asking to go there or the or governors are shipping them there on buses? It's a combination of both. You know, New York City continues to be sort of the North Star for so many of these asylum seekers because they either hear about the services that are being offered here or they do have friends and relatives. Now, this is something that's so important in our coverage. Many of these are Venezuelans. Many of these lack the social ties. And this is why once they make it here to New York City, they don't have a couch to crash on, right? They don't have family or friends that would take them in. And that is why we've seen, when you look at the numbers, Allison, and we followed these for a really long time, these numbers, uh, the total of asylum seekers that have been processed by New York City officials, uh, over 60,000, approaching 65,000. Out, out of those, nearly 40,000 are still currently in the city's care. And this is the next part of the story here. If we continue to t- see asylum seekers instead of about 200 a day, up to 1,000 a day, then you are looking at just tens of thousands of people in New York with the inability to work. And this is why what I'm hearing from my sources at the city level, they have been urging President Biden with the stroke of a pen, which we all know it's not that easy, to enact some sort of executive action that could allow many of these asylum seekers to get to work. Because I spent some time on Monday in Queens, New York at a work center that brings in many of these asylum seekers and gives them orientation. 32 of them that were sitting in front of me and I asked them, what's your main priority? And everybody said, we just want to work on the books. But then like, what happens if they don't find jobs? I, I, like, they continue to basically be a burden on the system. And I have heard from many of these asylum seekers which tell me, untie my hands. But for how long? How long could they be? This? It could be years. Remember, you're t- looking at two million pending asylum cases in the system. It's a system of backlogs. It's a system of bureaucracies. And so whether, you, whether people want them here or not, The reality is they are going to be here long after Title 42 expires. And so that's really the political hot potato that keeps getting tossed back and forth. How do you put these people to work out of the shadows because the asylum process is going to take years, in some cases, even a decade. And uh, just one second, Eva, just give us the politics of this, because I know you've been covering that. So what's happening on Capitol Hill while all this is happening? Well, we have seen that this administration has tried to mirror many of the policies that Trump implemented. So what we're seeing is something very similar to remain in Mexico under this administration, where they are trying to or saying now that these asylum seekers first have to apply somewhere else. And that has just roiled progressives, angered progressives, because President Biden, uh, when he was running for president, argued that he would take a more humane approach. And in the in the process, it's not as if Republicans have said, oh, thank you very much for mirroring these policies enacted under the prior administration. Politically, they get no points for doing this, uh, for making uh, these policies, uh, what progressives would argue, more draconian. Athena, go ahead. 
I was going to note that, you know, this talk about work, work authorization has been a big topic for the mayor of New York City, as you've mentioned, because even when you apply for asylum, it can still take six to 12 months to get the work authorization. But I also know that in New York, they're doing everything they can to try to figure out where they're going to put all of the migrants who may potentially arrive in the coming days. I mean, even if they don't see a huge explosion in numbers, there's already a very strong, uh, not trickle, a very strong sure. stream of, of migrants coming in. And so they've made some changes just in the last few days announcing plans. To talk about that. Yeah, on Friday, well, I remember the Eric Adams' announcement that he was going to transport willing migrants to neighboring counties in Rockland and uh, also in Orange County. And that was met with some criticism and some resistance from officials there to a point that they went to court and secured a restraining order, at least in Rockland County, which is a short drive from New York City. I was actually there on Tuesday. Uh, and there's certainly a concern that about sending people, could be 30, could be 300, uh, if, if the mayor gets his way uh, long term, that they put them out in the middle of nowhere, basically, where they don't have transportation, they don't have the employment. So, yes, they can be there sort of uh, as one person there described it to me. is like, you can put them on ice for four months. But what happens beyond that? Because we just discussed the asylum process takes years. And so this is why this is all playing out. It really has become a back and forth between Eric Adams and some of these, I should note, of course, Republican uh, county leaders. But the question is, where do you put these numbers that will continue to add up? Because that pipeline, yeah. there's still people in it long after Title 42 cuts yeah. it off. Um, Paul, thank you very much for all of that thank reporting. Uh, obviously, we're going to continue to talk about this throughout the hour. Shimon has been talking to law enforcement in Texas about how they're bracing for this surge. So he's going to bring us up to speed on that next. Law enforcement agencies preparing for the expiration of Title 42, which happens in less than an hour. Shimon, you have a lot of law enforcement sources, obviously, in Texas. What are they telling yeah, you about how they're you know, preparing? Given uh, how much time I've spent in Texas sure. uh, the last year or so, um, I think for them, the biggest concern are the, are the folks trying to get across the border illegally and, and how through some of these hot spots and sneaking in and, and getting in. Uh, and also the other thing, of course, their concern are smugglers and, you know, what law enforcement officials say are these cartels that are trying to lure people in uh, into, the, into the country and they're trying to offer people on the U.S. side money to go and pick them up and bring them in to, to the country. Uh, and that is something that the state officials and the local sheriffs are all very much concerned about, you know, because what happens is, is they say is that many of these migrants wind up on private property, ranchers and uh, hunters who have large acres of property. Uh, and one of the officials says, that, you know, you have situations where they start knocking on people's doors in the middle of the night looking for help, wanting water, wanting food. Uh, and so it creates a lot of problems and disturbance. The other thing is what, what happens in Texas is that there are these what they call bailouts, these car chases uh, through towns uh, and horrific accidents occur. Uh, some law enforcement officials don't chase. Others do. But what are they? They're, they're just running from border, border? From smugglers that are driving them across and getting, bringing them into the country, meeting them at whatever point and getting them in. Uh, and then they're running from the police. Um, you know, so there are those kinds of concerns for the local officials. You know, for Texas DPS, they have their whole their own whole operation outside of border patrol. It's called Operation Lone Star, uh, where they try to secure the border. You know, we saw Governor Abbott out there the other day talking about surging of National Guard, surging of 
DPS officers, and then you know they have uh, razor wiring across some of the, some of the borders to try and prevent people from coming in. So those are some of the things they're doing on the local level. While you know mostly on the entry points, you have border patrol dealing with, with that. But you know there's real concern that uh, folks who are trying to take advantage of this situation are luring uh, migrants in through uh, false promises. Uh, you know false with promises of money and work uh, and also paying people to try and get them over into the U.S. So I mean, everything you've described is troubling on a million different levels, and we can see why law enforcement and Border Patrol would be so on guard. And also, as we all know, over the past couple of years, there's been a surge in anti-immigrant violence. And so are they preparing for some sort of backlash? Yeah, I mean, anytime there's a focus on a particular group, within, you know, particular race, a particular nationality, you know, there's always the concern there may be an uptick uh, of hate crimes. And, you know, you do see that sometimes, sadly. Um, And there is that, certainly that concern for law enforcement to see that. But I'm not so sure here, you know, in New York City, where we've seen, you know, some of the migrants that are here, you know, you walk through Manhattan at a lot of the hotels in, in my neighborhood that they're staying at. I mean, they're peaceful people, you know, they're just trying to figure out how to make yeah. something. No, I mean the backlash of, to them. No, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, but there's, they're just outside. They're, they're trying to, to have some kind of life. They have kids um, and they seem to be accepted, at least we're, you know, from what I yeah. can see. And so far, I don't think we've seen any of that. But, you know, you, you raise a good point. That is certainly something that law enforcement is concerned about. Yeah. We are just getting in some news about this. So uh, let me read the statement that we have. A federal judge in Florida has temporarily blocked the Biden administration from releasing migrants from Border Patrol without court notices. This is according to a late Thursday court filing. The ruling takes effect Thursday, which is tonight, at 11.59 p.m., so almost midnight Eastern time. That coincides with, of course, the end of Title 42, as we've been talking about. This ruling will expire in 14 days. The Biden administration is expected to appeal this. For now, the ruling takes away one of the administration's key tools to try to manage the number of migrants in U.S. Customs and Border Protection custody, in some cases by releasing them from custody with conditions. I mean, we've uh, here you go, yeah, Paul. This, yeah. this is what I was speaking about. There's been so much focus on the resources being surged to the border and law enforcement or troops who may not be performing law enforcement duties but helping fill gaps. Do they feel secure that they can get a handle on this? But also, when it comes to something like this, have any of those resources, how much focus has been on how, resources to house and to keep in custody uh, the migrants that they need to. Yeah, that, that's. And I think Polo could probably speak to that a little bit better too. But but I think that is a real concern, right? There's overcrowding. There, they don't have the facilities mm-hmm. to keep all these people. Uh, so what do you do at that point? And, and right, they, they had been coming. releasing them into the community. They, yes? they, they did see this coming. In the last couple of hours, we heard from a top DHS official who said that for the last couple of years, they've been working to increase, to expand their capacity. But still, like we just so talked about. I, this ruling, Polo, like... By 7,000. What do you make of it? This ruling is fascinating yeah. because, it, like you just said, Allison, it does take away a potential tool for the Biden administration to expedite the expelling of some of these asylum seekers that do not follow that route. Again, that policy, these new policies that the Biden administration is putting into place that do have some notes of the Trump administration, um, this allowed them to uh, be able to clear some of those holy areas. So, so now the they... W- the they result w- with the appeal. Right. So right. now they have to house them 
What, what, what this potentially did was it would uh, expedite the return process, right? Uh, it, it, That's what Biden was trying to do. Exactly. Right. Now, right. So not now, now they though. don't have exactly. So they were prevented from doing so without court notification. Yes. And so it was giving them another hurdle. But the, Eva, this this is mm. this right here is Exhibit A of why this has been so bedeviling to so many different presidents because without a law without Congress passing a law, the, they can try to do things through executive action or through, you know, whatever President Biden is trying. But then a court shoots it down. Yeah, th- this is this issue is cyclical. I think that is why, frankly, Allison, I'm reticent to characterize this as a crisis, because today it is Title 42 ending. But in a few months from now, it'll be some other policy. And frankly, we haven't seen, you know, a, an adverse impact in this country as a result of mass migration. Like what what big, you know, tragedy happens when people are coming in big numbers to seek asylum? The numbers go up, the numbers come down, and we will all be okay. But if you, <laughs> like, you know, it's it's just Governor Abbott would have a. would disagree. Yeah, but yeah. Depends I heard on your something really position. interesting I from mean, one of the NGOs that deals with these asylum seekers here in New York. It said that the profile has changed. Right in the '80s, it was the head of the household, perhaps on our hemisphere or in another, and they would leave their home, travel to the United States, work, send back support in the form of remittances. What changed uh, in the last decade or so, especially in the last couple of years, you now have massive family units that are coming definitely from our hemisphere, right, with the Venezuelan factor, and you have Haiti, you have uh, uh, Cubans, you have Nicaraguans as well, but then also add Ukrainians, add uh, people from Afghanistan as well. So you have entire family units. So multiply that one person by two, three, four, five people, that's where uh, the challenge is now. But and I the think concern the, is the resources. Posture, the posture thing. and the suggestion, though, is that Americans have something to fear, yeah. that this population is overrepresented when it comes to criminality. And it's just false. It's not true. Yeah, you're right. Native-born Americans are responsible for more crimes than are immigrants. That has been uh, demonstrably proven in the numbers. But as you know... Uh, there are some networks who have made a cottage industry out of scaring their viewers about that influx of, you know, other cultures coming. And so, um, look, you know, we hope that they can figure it out, certainly at the Congress, at the congressional level. It's a racialized cultural battle, and we have seen politicians primarily want the issue rather than a solution. Thank you all very much for this. Also, there's a major development in the New York subway chokehold case. An arrest is imminent and a manslaughter charge is being filed. Athena is going to fill us in next. In New York City, the 24-year-old who held another man in a fatal chokehold on the subway is expected to be arrested tomorrow. The Manhattan DA's office says Daniel Perry will be charged with second-degree manslaughter in the death of 30-year-old Jordan Neely. Athena's covering this for us, so what's going to happen next? We know he's going to be arraigned, or he's expected to be arraigned tomorrow. That's when we should learn more about the charges in second-degree manslaughter. It involves uh, causing the death of another recklessly, but recklessly has a legal definition. And so we're going to hopefully learn more about that tomorrow, as well as the Neely family, uh, the family of Jordan Neely. Their attorneys are going to be having a press conference sort of around this this whole arrest. I think it's 11 a.m. tomorrow. But we do have a statement from Daniel Penny's uh, law firm, the law firm representing him, that I believe we can put on the screen. It says... uh, 
when Mr. Penny, a decorated Marine veteran, stepped in to protect himself and his fellow New Yorkers, his well-being was not assured. He risked his own life and safety for the good of his fellow passengers. The unfortunate result was the unintended and unforeseen death of Mr. Neely. We are confident that once all the facts and circumstances surrounding this tragic incident are brought to bear, Mr. Penny will be fully absolved of any wrongdoing. That is from the law firm Razor & Kenneth uh, that is representing Daniel Penny. So it took 10 days to reach this decision to file charges for the DA. Is that long? I mean, is it long? Longer than usual? Yeah, I mean, potentially, clearly people in this city who protested and, uh, you know, took to the streets felt it was long. And generally, yes, in, in a case like this, it could be viewed as why did it take so long, given the fact that the DA had the results from the medical examiner so quickly, which essentially uh, ruled that uh, he died by a, com- a compression to the neck, a chokehold, uh, and then also said a homicide, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's murder. But in any case, they had the evidence, they had the information. A lot of people were very upset, in- in- including his family. The fact that, you know, they brought him back, they took him into custody to question him, uh, and then they released mm-hmm. uh, released him. And that was sort of where the controversy and why people sure. were so upset. And is the DA here... Uh, feeling the pressure and now finally authorizing this arrest, there is some possibility because they haven't indicted him. Not yet, till no, tomorrow. But they could have. They could have presented could have. a case. Right, so what were they doing the during jury. the Sundays? Well, there were, there was, we, many people saw one of the first videos that came out. It was a, taken by a freelance journalist. It was posted to Facebook. It, it was taken during the chokehold. So you don't see what leads up to it. But we understand that investigators were looking at a number of other videos, other evidence that other people, you know, videos other people took, and also speaking with uh, witnesses about what they saw, what they experienced, what was going on before uh, Daniel Penny approached Neely and put him in this chokehold. Uh, so that is why it took a while. They, they might, they would argue, or they, yeah. they, would, they would explain that that's what they've been up to. Right. They haven't and, just been sitting on their hands. They're going to put this it, before the grand jury, and then no doubt, uh, I'm sure he's going to testify in his own defense here. Well, I mean, I think we just heard a preview yeah. of that from yes. his attorney. Polo, I was so interested to hear that you have seen. Yeah. You had oh, wow. seen Jordan yep. Neely on Not the, the only one. It's subway. The thousands of New York. It's the F train. It's the one I take every day. In fact, that day, I had just passed through that station 30 minutes before. And months before that, I recognized him. He, he stepped onto my train car. He was looking for donations, but never threatened, threatening at all. Um, made a couple of passes up and down the train car and then moved on to the next one. Something that it's he was everyday a, um, life. But Michael Jackson. I know. He was and then there are so many more that, that recognize yeah. him from his, uh, from yes, his days as a really, performer. You know, one of the things also yeah. with this case that it really highlights, you know, we all ride the subway and, mm-hmm. the you know, mental health and, and the problems um, that, you know, many people are facing um, and, and what goes on. Um, on the, in the subways, um, it's really, it's just so sad. You know, he was on a list for someone who needed help, right? Like a mental health. Absolutely. And so there was, there are a lot of um, services and needs that perhaps this individual's need, individual needed that he just wasn't getting. That's, it's just sad in the end that, it, you know, it came, uh, it came to this in such a horrific way. That's my question as well. It's just, it is a tragedy on so many levels. It's deep. And what, like, wraparound services are for people in crisis in New York City? How did we get to this point, and how do we avoid it getting to this point again? 
Well, this is something that the Mayor Adams has been talking mm-hmm. about for months. Back in uh, November, he made a big announcement about a legislative agenda that would help deal with some of, uh, kind of help fill in the gaps Involuntary in committal. I that, mean, that, that is a big part of it. He wants to make, make sure that people, first responders, for instance, uh, law enforcement, people at hospitals, have all the tools they need to be able to evaluate someone who may be uh, have experiencing mental illness and therefore not aware of the fact that they cannot care for themselves. And so that kind of per- that person cannot then, if they're treated, then be released into outpatient uh, treatment and be expected to comply because the, the issue is that they don't realize that they need help. And so those are some of the steps that, that Mayor Adams wants to take to make sure not only give them more mental health resources, but also make sure that if someone does need to be potentially involuntarily committed, that there are processes in place for that to happen. And so he's uh, the, the, the five organizations that contract with the city to help uh, people who need housing, people who need that kind of help, they're going to be meeting next week to put together an action plan to make sure that these sort of valuations uh, can take place and at removal at a hospital, that the person can be evaluated. And so mm-hmm. if someone does need to be in inpatient treatment or in you know, be forced to be treated, yeah, they that can, can get happen. that. And that's um, without even yeah. talking about the public safety addition that he made, right, Shimon? I mean, where he added all these officers and making sure that officers are present in most stations. Look, so mean, there's a mental health and then also the public safety initiative from there. Subways and keeping the subways... <laughs> safe is vital to this city's economy and you know this is it's absolutely it's like how everyone functions in the right. city it's how you get anywhere um and so that's why anytime something happens in the subway it you know it's immediately gets attention and yeah and they can't be everywhere i mean they it's, it's a everywhere. huge subway system they can't law enforcement can't be everywhere but the mayor has said that they were pouring more, um, you officers. know, officers. And then they were in, trying to do, like, we'll mental health. But, yeah. And this idea of, of potentially uh, putting people uh, involuntarily committing them, yes. that is something that, that Civil Liberties Union is against. Mm-hmm. The New York Civil Liberties Union saying this is, a, this is stigmatizing people with mental mm-hmm. illness issues that makes them more likely to become victims of violence. And when it comes to this case, I think what's going to be interesting is how many people who are, settling, who are deciding this are New Yorkers who would have chosen to walk away versus engage. Yeah. And so that's it's just one of the issues. It will be very interesting to follow this, guys. We have to go. But what happens next mm-hmm. for Congressman George Santos? who's now facing 13 federal criminal charges. Eva has new reporting for us next. Truth challenge Congressman George Santos now facing 13 federal charges, including fraud and money laundering. Eva is here to fill us in. Eva... Truth. Now what? I like the truth, truth challenge. challenge. I mean, how else can you describe I it? I mean, that's a nice way. Yeah, you know? you. Okay, what next <laughs> for him? Congressman Santos has had a heck of a week. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Today, right. he appeared virtually in Brazilian court. In CNN, we have a presence in Brazil, so this is how we know that this Because he was wanting for out. something in Brazil as well. Yes. This is stemming back from 2008, when he uh, passed along a stolen check to a store clerk. Upwards of made a purchase with a stolen check, upwards of a thousand dollars. And for a long time, Brazilian authorities could not find him. But now he is, of course, notorious. So, and a congressman. <laughs> and a congressman. <laughs> so they know where he is. They, they got a hold of him, but he was able to avoid prosecution in this case, uh, by, uh, with, uh, by way of a deal where, um, he had to pay both 
the government as well as the victim uh, in total $5,000. So this got all resolved today. He, you know, isn't going to be extradited to Brazil, but of course he still has to face the music. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he, uh, he has to still face the music back here at home. Okay, so tell us about that. Yes, so he was uh, indicted earlier this week, or just yesterday, on 13 counts. Uh, some of those charges, I think that we have a graphic, uh, include seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, two counts false statements to the House, and one count theft of public funds. Um, you know, The indictment alleges that in uh, one of the most, you know, more egregious uh, allegations that he was taking unemployment fr- funds from the state of New York while he was working in another state, making like a, a COVID six, relief funds, COVID right? relief yeah. funds while he was making a six-figure salary, like one hundred twenty thousand dollars, and he's collecting COVID relief funds. That's and one yesterday, of the outside the courthouse, he said he has a defense and he's yes, going to present it. He is denying these allegations. He was up on the hill. <laughs> Uh, returning to it Congress was, today. It was really interesting control. listening to him outside of court because he was like, well, this is now going to let me like kind of prove my defense now. I can defend myself freely. It's a good thing and, I've been charged. And he's like, I want to know how they got to these numbers. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to, you know, so... Um, well, he'll find out in yeah, court. exactly. <laughs> but he also said what has now become the age-old refrain, it's a witch hunt. It's right, a, uh, right. This Trumpian response that everything is a witch hunt. You know, the deep state is out to get me. What about ism, right? What about Joe Biden was his argument. The, the problem, I think, politically for re- Republicans that we have seen a growing number want to distance themselves from him. But I was speaking to a Democratic group today, and they are relishing this. They view Santos as a mechanism to characterize House Republicans as dysfunctional, that Santos is emblematic of a larger issue among House Republicans. And so the longer that he is ensnared in this controversy, Democrats will argue that he is a reflection of the body. But the, there's a whole ethics thing, right, that's going on. And when is there any idea of when that, when the results of the House ethics, I think that's right, that's what's going on? So that, that's unclear to me. Yes, there are several other investigations, right. the House ethics investigation among them. And keep in mind, he also could face additional charges. But that's the thing. Yeah. As a result of some of these other investigations. Which I think is really significant is that I don't think that the federal, I don't think they're done. I think there's more um, investigations and I think there are indications. I mean, this is serious. I mean, you know, it's one thing, like we could joke about him, but I mean, he's he's facing some other significant investigations. Financial. um, Financial investigations. So like, we we don't know everything, but for whatever reason, um, the Department of Justice decided, okay, we have enough. We're going to bring these charges for now but there's more stuff coming. So it's interesting to see him so freely speaking to the to the media, all of those cameras making additional statements when this process is not over. And what I think is so interesting, is there any sense, that I, I don't know if there's polling at this point, you know, he, he says he's going to run again, he's, there's, he's got a ways to go, but is there a sense that he has the political sp- support from his district, yeah. that, they're, that they're eager to, to have him run again? No, the limited polling that we have seen is that he does not support he does not have the support of his district. I'm regularly in touch with constituents in the district, both Republican and Democrats, who have no appetite for a second Santos <laughs> yeah, term. There, I said, I said make it quick, and you just said no. That was very well done. Thank you guys very much. All right, we'll be right back.
Elon Musk says he's found a new CEO to take over Twitter. His time as chief executive has been chaotic. Since he bought the company in October, Musk says he will now become Twitter's chief technology officer, overseeing product, software, and system operations. He says the new CEO will take over in about six weeks, but did not reveal who it is. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal report that Linda Yaccarino, who's NBC Universal's head of advertising, is in talks for that job. All right, tomorrow on CNN This Morning, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is going to join the show to discuss the end of Title 42 and what it means for the border and other American cities. So as we've been telling you, Title 42 will end in a matter of minutes. We're going to go live back to the border with Ed Lavendera right after this. We are now minutes away from Title 42 ending. More than 150,000 migrants are waiting across the border. So what's going to happen now? I'm back with my panel and also Ed Lavendera, who is live for us in El Paso, Texas. So, Ed, tell us what's happening on the ground. Well, first, I want to get a little to some developing news, and this is uh, uh, out of Florida. A federal judge uh, tonight has blocked a Biden administration effort uh, for what is essentially kind of a parole program for migrants taken into custody. These would be migrants that would be allowed uh, to be released into the United States without the necessary paperwork, but with some conditions. Uh, Department of Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said this would only apply uh, on a case-by-case basis to a fraction of migrants. Nevertheless, it was intended to help alleviate the pressure on U.S. Customs and Border Protection facilities that are processing thousands and thousands of migrants, which right now stands at about 28,000 migrants. So we're really stretching capacity here. But uh, a federal judge in Florida has temporarily blocked the use of this parole program by the Biden administration. How this is going to affect uh, the processing of migrants here in the coming days isn't exactly clear, but it's uh, clearly a a tool that the Biden administration was hoping would help alleviate the strain and the pressure on Customs and Border Protection officials here on the front lines. But here tonight, it's relatively quiet. I was just speaking with colleagues on the Mexican side of the border from El Paso. They say it's very quiet. The large group of migrants uh, that had been waiting to be processed is really uh, that the number of those people have dwindled down. So as we reported here throughout the evening, you know, we weren't really expecting this massive rush of people rushing to the border when the clock struck midnight Eastern time. Uh, This is going to be something that we'll have to watch and monitor here over the next couple of days and into the weeks ahead as well. And it is so helpful to have you there for us so that we can see what is really happening and not just obviously what people are fearing. Um, Polo, it's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously people, including officials, were thinking that there might be a rush to the border, but it's not proving to be true at the, this hour. And the head of DHS earlier today put it very clearly, exactly what midnight will mean. Alexander, Alex Mallorca said that anyone coming in after midnight, which is only in two minutes, would be presumed ineligible for asylum in Title 42, which kicked it in March of 2020. So it's a three years that's coming to an end now, uh, will be replaced now by Title 8, which will be, people will be placed in removal proceedings. Uh, they will be potentially barred from entering back into the United States for five years and possibly face prosecution if they try to enter again. So that is the key difference. What will we see tomorrow? But most importantly, what will we see in American cities in the coming days or weeks? Let's find out. But as Ed told us earlier, 
um, and it may even have been last hour. Basically, there's a lot of misinformation and just um, scattered information. So the migrants don't exactly know what a judge has done, what's in effect right now, no, they what's have ending, phones, what's starting. But, and, and as you can imagine, on the phones, they're just on social media. And yeah. that's where a lot of their information is going. And, and that's where a lot of their information is coming from. And so that's why we're seeing a, a lot of bad information out there with their perceiving what they're reading is bad information. That's why the Biden administration wants to get these steeper consequences or at least news of them out to as many people as they can south of the border to try to keep those numbers from going up. But even under Title VIII, some migrants would meet the qualifications. Absolutely. A reasonable fear, is that right? Right. The Biden administration was very clear that they have established legal paths for folks, including at regional processing centers in Central and South America. That hopefully will give people incentive to turn to that versus the cartels that we just discussed, the ones that are in charge of those pipelines that go all the way from South America through the Darien Pass over the border and often end up here in cities like New York. Yeah, I mean, Congressman Cuellar from Texas was saying today that everybody applies for asylum, and he was saying a very high number are not actually eligible. So we will see how they deal with that now going forward. As of right now, it has officially, Title 42 has officially expired. Um, Thank you all for being here tonight. Great to have you, and thanks so much for watching. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.